If you're new with us, we've been trekking through the book of Genesis, just getting going actually. Uh, we are still in Genesis chapter 1, and we are looking today at a group of verses that really describe the second part of the sixth day of creation, which uh, is that he, he creates mankind in his image. And so we've looked at all of the other days of creation. Today we want to park an entire day on looking at what it means to be made in the image of God. Image or icon is not something, maybe not a word that you use very often, but it's one of those themes that is always kind of influencing the subconscious nature of your soul. It's, it's always having an impact on you. Um, when I think about it, we're all pursuing conformity to some type of image. It's, it's just how we're hardwired. Uh, my fifth grade year, Michael Jordan was the NBA MVP. Like he was for many years, but my fifth grade year he was specifically. And I just happened to be playing basketball that year too. And I, I loved basketball. All, all of my friends, they, they had this gear. All of my friends that were good at basketball, they had this gear. It was the same kind of gear that Michael Jordan had on. Uh, and, and this was, you know, just early on in the Jordan brand of everything. It was still really tightly attached to the brand Nike, if you're familiar with, with Nike. And, uh, it, you know, I, so I was really honed in on the image of Nike, right? The, the, the Nike swoosh, right? I mean, at first it was just kind of a subconscious like preference of mine. Like I, I like to have Nike shoes and I like uh, Nike socks and shorts. And then it started getting a little bit more serious. In fact, I started noticing people and noticing the clothing that they were wearing. And like, I would just kind of drift and be like, hey bro, nice socks. And then I stopped and I thought, man, who, who says that? Who comments on socks, right? But it didn't stop there. It, it kind of kept going. I, I was seeing it everywhere. Until uh, it really came to a head one day when I went to my barber shop. And, uh, and Danny was there. Danny was my barber, childhood barber. Uh, and I, I walked into the barber shop and I said, Danny, I want to do something a little different today. Do you think that you could carve a Nike swoosh in the back of my head? And he looked at me kind of crazy for a second. And then he pulled out of his lower drawer a template for a Nike swoosh that he had apparently been using on all kinds of young men. We're all, that, that's a real story. My mom has a picture somewhere. You can ask her if you know her. But I was conformed to the image of Nike. I was convinced if I could just have more Nike in my life, it would convert and translate into more made free throws, layups, and three-pointers. Conforming to that image. Now, you may not be running to the barber shop to get a Nike swoosh in the back of your head, but this is where every human being on the face of the planet is. Searching, wandering, desiring to be changed and conformed to some image. And this is because God made us in his image. And in making us in his image, when we've fallen from that image, our hearts are searching, they're seeking, they're looking. Some people may find it in the employment that they have, the, the families, their personal appearance, but we're all searching and looking to be filled by an image. Michael Goheen says this in his work, The Drama of Scripture. He says, the effect of the fall of man on all of us is not that we are no longer image bearers. We remain in the image of God, but that our rebellion has deeply affected how we are human. That's what we're gonna be talking about today is, is how the fall has affected how we are deeply human. And in order to do that, we really need to look at what the image of God is. So here's our, 
Here's a, here's a passage from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that, that talks about this transformation that we're experiencing. Paul writes this, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the journey that we're on as Christians is a journey toward greater conformity to the image of Jesus. That's where we're going. So to hit, uh, to, to hit this head on today, we need to hit it from a fresh angle. Most of the time when we talk about the saving work of Jesus, we start in Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 is really all about the story of the fall of man. It's when Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit and, and corruption and, and, the, and the, uh, really the, the unraveling of creation begins in Genesis 3. So most of the time we start there with the gospel, but that's not where the gospel of God starts. The good news of who God is starts in Genesis chapter 1. Because if we don't have Genesis chapter 1, we have no idea what the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the image of. We need to see that in our heart of hearts that God did not create us as inherently bad people. Many of us struggle with guilt and shame. Guilt says I did a bad thing. Shame says I'm a bad, I am bad in my identity. And Genesis chapter 1 confronts that idea in us today. And we need to hear this because God made each of us as very good. And if we don't believe that, we'll spend our entire lives searching and committing ourselves to things and, and really a, an image that we were never made for. So here's our big idea today. It has really two parts to it. Being made in the image of God is an identity to be embraced and it's a responsibility to be stewarded. So what I want to do now is I want to read Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 31. This is the, sixth, the, the, the second part of the sixth day of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. There are a couple phrases in there that we really need to unpack today. Um, what it means to have dominion, what the word subdue means, all of that kind of stuff. Because what we see is that we're made in his image after his likeness. That's, a, that's, a, that's an identity to be embraced. But we were also created with, with authority to have dominion and subdue the earth. And so that's kind of where we're going today. And I, I, the way that I've kind of framed this up for us today with God's help is that there are really three primary relationships that the image of God must be embraced and stewarded through. And the first one is this, in our relationship with God. So the first thing that we see 
uh, is that to be made in God's image is an identity, that we are to be made like him and that we are made to experience him. We're made in his likeness, the scriptures say. The creation of mankind is distinct and very good for one reason only. He gives us an identity before it becomes a responsibility. He gives us a relationship. That's why he says it's very good. Psalm 8 is helpful for us as we think about this. Because Genesis 1, is, it's kind of hard for us to see the whole idea that God has behind relationship other than he made us in his likeness. But Psalm 8, verses 3 through 5, helpful for us. Listen to what the scriptures say. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Okay, so in other words, when I look at all that you've made, the first six and a half days of creation, when I see it all, God, it does something in me. It tells me something of who you are and who I am in you. And he pauses. There's a refrain here. And he asks this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? In verse 5. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And three words here. Crowned him with glory and with honor. So David asks, God, why are we different? God, why am I different to you than the rest of your creation? Why do you care so deeply about us? Did you know that there are so many people on the face of the planet that don't believe this about God? That do not believe that God cares deeply about them? That do not believe that they are ultimately made in the image of God for a relationship with God? And they go down this kind of dark way of thinking that they're lonely and isolated, and it leads to terrible things, terrible outcomes in their life. This, these verses, Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, are correction to that false way of thinking about ourselves in relationship to God. Three words that we look at. We were crowned. So David actually believed when he wrote and heard from God that we are royalty. Now, here's what that means, that we belong at the king's table. Just like that crippled guy in 2 Samuel that David, that was a relative of Jonathan's that David brought, Mephibosheth, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Just like that story, we belong at the king's table. The king has always given a seat at his table to his royal kids. But, but not only that, he's given them kingdom, dominion, and responsibility. And it's not because of our ability. It's, it's not because of who we are. Because in a monarchy, it, it doesn't matter how great you are. If you don't have the family name, you're not sitting at the king's table. So the first thing we've got to see about who God is, is that we are different in our, in our being, in our identity, before anything else that we do or any other responsibility we have. And so we have the name, we're crowned, and we're crowned with two things, with glory so here's what that means. We're not only crowned, but we have the capacity for intimacy with the king of the world. We have the capacity for all that he is to, to embrace that, to absorb that, and relate to that. That's what it means to be made in his likeness. He is a self-disclosing king that shows us his heart. That's who God is. That's who God has always been. He wants to show us his grace and his mercy and his truth. But not only with glory, he's also created, crowned us with, with honor as well. So he's given us the title of ambassador, you know, to share and act on his behalf. 
So it's not just kind of this empty crown or this empty glory. It has a weight to it, a responsibility with it, an honor with it. And that means that everything we do, as the book of Colossians says, Colossians 3.17, that we do as if we're doing it unto the Lord. Because it's not just we're in the walls of the church or behind the live stream screen in your living room today, that you are in God's presence. It is everywhere that you go. And we have a responsibility to steward that everywhere that we go. Each and every person on the face of the planet is created in and for a relationship with God. And church, we need, a, we need a Genesis 1 gospel, not just the Genesis 3 gospel. Because if we start with Genesis 3 and understanding how we should relate to God, if we start with just the bad news, we never see what God intended. And we always live in this position of shame and condemnation, looking at our sin and thinking that God made us like that, and that we can never overcome that sin nature through his grace. So we can never overcome those strongholds that we have through his grace. And we're always striving to get his approval. And we wonder, is anything ever enough for you, God? He seems like a tyrant to us that's always pressing in and never giving us what it takes for transformation. God made you to enjoy fellowship with him. The same way that you might like a long walk on the beach or on a trail in the mountains, you were made for union with your creator. But there are two primary ways that we falsely relate to God, I think. And it, and it comes because we don't understand Genesis 1. And, and the, a study called The Gospel-Centered Life, written by Bob Thune and one of his friends, is really helpful in helping us understand the false ways that we relate to God. The first one is this, is that we pretend. We pretend. So because of the shame, which shame is always identity-based. It's not activity-based. Guilt is activity-based. Shame is identity. Shame says, I am bad. And when you are bad, how do you change? Some of us walk with a great degree of shame each and every day of our lives that we interact with folks, and it's because of the breakdown and understanding that God made us in his image. He created us for relationship. So I, 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 feel in my bro- I feel my brokenness with God. I feel this shame. And, and here's what it leads me to. I've got to do something about it because I can't possibly live with all this shame. And so what I do is I pretend. I pretend that I'm not as bad as I actually am and that God's not as good as he actually is. It's the only option. We, we pretend that, that, that we're not as bad, and so we, we're, we're afraid to confess sin. We're afraid to talk about the broken ways that we image God and relate to God because we're afraid that he won't have us because we don't understand Genesis 1, that he created us in likeness to be with him. Or the other side of it is, is that we perform. So because of the inadequacy that we feel, we kick it into performance gear. We make every action, every obedience, an attempt to earn God's approval, forgetting that we already have it because we're made in his image. We're made in his image, and Jesus restores that image and redeems that image, and so we can live out of a Genesis 1 life, even though we're in a Genesis 3 world. That, that's the kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And the beautiful news is that we don't have to relate to God in false ways anymore, because our relationship with God was always a part of his design, and Jesus has secured that relationship back forever. Because what Jesus did is he, he bore the curse of the tree to put so the, the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus came and he, and he hit, he hit out head on 
when he went to the cross for us. And what it did is it, it secured back a right relationship with how we can relate to God. It's a journey for us, but it's begun as Christians, and it's as good as gold because he's promised it to us through his spirit. So he's conforming us, as that 2 Corinthians 3 passage says, from one degree of glory to another until Jesus returns. You were made to relate to God in a redeemed way. The second relationship that the image of God really impacts is our relationship with self and others. So being made uh, in the image of God in his likeness, that's one thing, but what are the implications for relating to myself and others? For ourselves, it's, it's seeing that all of who we are is made in God's image. Your, your quirks, your looks, everything about you, the things that you think about yourself in your subconscious and the things that you think about yourself when you look in the mirror, all of those things, all the brokenness that's around that that leads to the behaviors that play out in your life, what the image of God means for you is that you're not an accident, that nothing about you is accidental. Instead, the psalmist says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you're a magnificent design to God. But we don't think that way often. Sometimes we think too highly about ourselves and pride and and oftentimes we think, in my experience anyway, we think too lowly of ourselves in shame. The biggest thing that keeps us from a proper relationship with ourselves, it's not usually thinking too much of ourselves in pride, but it's rather thinking of ourselves too much. Paul was so aware of this tendency. And here's what he frees you up to experience in Jesus. Listen to it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. He says that in Christ, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. In his perfect image, in his likeness, you will appear with him in glory. This truth... Um, hit me this week when I was at David Greer's memorial service. I knew David for seven weeks, and you might think, what kind of a relationship can build in seven weeks? And I'll tell you, I was surprised. I didn't know David long, but I knew him deep. And the thing about David Greer that I loved so much is that he was a pastor's pastor. When I met him, it was like he didn't want anything from me that he just wanted to belong to God and know God and experience God through me. It, it wasn't like, oh, great job preaching, really enjoyed that sermon. It wasn't like, oh, great job leading that missional community. It wasn't, it wasn't like works-based in anything. It was totally identity-based. And, and I got to know him a little bit more as I listened to the different people share at the memorial service. One of the pastors at the memorial said this, you know the thing that made David so special? He died before he died, and then he lived before he lived. And, and, and what he meant by that was Colossians 3.3, 3, that, that David had actually died long ago. And Christ had been living through him for years and years and years. And that was what freed David up so much to be so much about other people. It's, it's a reality that I think about, and I, and I think I've tasted it a few times in my life, if I'm honest with you. Some days I can't imagine being that free in Christ. I mean, to get up in the morning to meet with people and care for people and not need anything from them. 
to not need any approval from them, to not need them to join my team or get on board with my, you know, my business plan or, or anything like that, but to look at them as made in the image of God fully and perfectly and to love them sacrificially because Christ in that moment is loving me so deeply and fully that I am completely satisfied and need nothing else. That is what it means to experience the image of God in and of yourself. To be so full and to so, so satisfied, it's like what the, the writer of Genesis, Moses, will go on to say, that, that they were naked and unashamed. They needed nothing other than God and his presence. And God gave them this garden to experience more of his presence within. And church, the beauty of this the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of this good news is that we are free to live like that now. Not just on that day when Jesus returns, but now. And that means that we can let go for some of us these unbearable expectations that we set on ourselves. that we say, if I can just do this, this, and this before I die, then I'll be satisfied. What is keeping us from being satisfied today? What is it? Because that is where the brokenness of your understanding of yourself made in God's image is coming from. But when we are able to consider ourselves dead to ourselves and alive in Christ, and what that means is that all Jesus is and all he is is completely satisfying to me and all that I am. That he is filling up what I'm lacking in every single space. And that's the only way you can live in a year like 2020 and have joy. It's the only way. We will never be able to extend the dignity of being made in the image of God to others if we don't believe it for ourselves. We are eternally in Christ. But it's not only for ourselves, but also for others. So let's think about this. In community, how does the image of God play out in community with others? And we talked about this a lot in the last six months but Genesis 1 in the image of God shows us that our primary connection to others is through our connection to God. That we are first and foremost made by him and for him. And therefore, the only way that our world flourishes and returns to the harmony that existed in Genesis 1 is through a relationship with God. It's the only way the image of God is not marred and, and broken as it's portrayed. And this is why if you think about if you think about any attempt for societal change, there's a number of them that, that need to happen, right? In our culture, in our world, in our, in our country, any effort for societal transformation that does not start with the Imago Dei is insufficient because they settle for far too less than God's design. They settle for things that just hit at the edge of justice and mercy instead of the full Imago Dei, the image of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man that, um, that experienced tremendous suffering. And he was a bold guy, but he also experienced a really deep community. And he wrote about it in this little book called Life Together. Here, I'm gonna pull a quote from page 36. It's one of my favorite books about community. He says this, because Christ stands between me and others, I dare not de desire direct fellowship with them. So based on our flesh, he says, I'm not gonna desire fellowship with them. Because human love constructs its own image of the other person. Of what he is and what he should become. It takes the life of the other person into his own hands. 
But spiritual love recognizes the true image of the other person, which he has received from Jesus Christ, the image that Jesus Christ himself embodied and would stamp upon all men. Human love constructs its own image of the other person. It takes the other person's life into its own hands. How many times have we done that? We've thought, yeah, I know what that person needs to become and do. That person needs to become more like me, you know, deal with things more like I do. But what the doctrine of the image of God does is it kicks this idea of a social ladder out of our worldview completely. Race, money, culture, class, education, and any other niche of life that we could find to justify our existence in, it takes it completely off the radar. It is leveled as an image bearer of God. And it means that no matter who you are, where you've come from, and what you have, that I need you and you need me to fully image all that God has for us to experience in this world. Think about that. Consider that. That that your conformity to the image of Jesus is far superior than your conformity to the image of me. But how many times do we take the image of who we are and put it on another person and say, this is how you should change? Your conformity of the image of Jesus to the image of Jesus is far more than your conformity to the image of me and you. It's not about making the rich poorer or the poor richer. It's not about making the white black or the black white or the conservative more progressive or the progressives more conservative. Instead, it's about looking at and living, living out our oneness in Christ, where I see your distinctives, you see mine, and we worship God because he has fearfully and wonderfully made us all. It takes a big gospel to live this way, church, but it's the only way that what we are going after in this city will ever come to pass. If we can have this big of a, of a vision for the image of God. But not just to other people does, does, does this impact, but also to the most vulnerable other people in a community. You know, you can tell a lot about the quality of a society or a church or a community by the way that they care for their most vulnerable. The way in which they do that shares more about their heart than they would ever say. Do you remember the story of Jesus that he tells about the final judgment in Matthew 25? Jesus, he paints this picture uh, of judgment day. I'm going to flip here real quick for us. It won't be on the screen, but I just want to track along here. Jesus paints this picture of judgment day. And and what he's doing as as he paints this picture is he saying that there's going to be some people that are going to sit on his left hand, some people are going to be on his right hand at judgment day, and some of them are going to be sheep, and some of them are going to be goats. Some of them he's going to say, welcome into my eternal kingdom. Others he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And what's the difference going to be? That's the question. That's what we all want to know, right? What's not in what they said for these guys. It's instead what they did. And they're all confused at Judgment Day. Jesus has drawn it up for them. And they're saying, Jesus, when do we see you hungry and and naked? I'm I'm sure I would have given you my shirt if I saw you. Jesus, when do we see you without without food? I'm sure I would have taken you to the market and got you some food if I would have seen you like that, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, he says, the king will answer them. Matthew 25, 40. 
Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's not one person on the face of the planet that does not image God. So to withhold care when you can provide it is to functionally act as if they are subhuman. Did you hear that? When someone is in need, Jesus is saying, he's talking about physical need, we could say spiritual need as well. To not act in obedience to that is to functionally act if they are subhuman, that they are not made very good. Now, I know that we can get overwhelmed with the brokenness around us, but there's something about Jesus' satisfying grace in our lives that can keep us steady in a world full of need. Genesis 1 continues to talk for us as image bearers, not just about bringing order, but about bringing fullness to the earth. So he takes it, as we've talked about the last two weeks, from chaos to order, but not just to order, but also to fullness. He does that with all of creation, with all of the plants, with all of the animals. Everything is multiplying. It's bursting with life. The same thing happens with his image bearers. And it's why, as a church, we value children. So if you're in Genesis 1 here, you continue tracking along here. He says, he says this in Genesis chapter 1. He says, um, be fruitful, verse 28, and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So he's talking about not only um, creation, but he's talking about children, procreation. So my friend Danny has eight children. Most of the world sees that as a problem. Genesis 1 does not. I'm not kidding. I have four kids and I walk into the grocery store and people are like, you know what causes that, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, you mean draw you a picture? You know, like, I can tell you what causes that, this beautiful union that my wife and I have, right? Megan's blushing right now. Uh, but uh, Genesis 1 does not see it as a problem. And one of the things Danny taught me years ago is he said, having a big family, and if God allows that for you, I realize that there's brokenness surrounding that as well that I'm going to talk about that is the single best way to uproot the idolatry of my heart and disentangle me from the pursuit of my flesh, to have a big family. If you're married, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I attempting to limit the size of my family to feed my flesh? It's a real question to ask, isn't it? You know, two, two kids, two and a half, you know, the whole, the whole picture of suburban life, right? A three-bedroom, two-bath house, you know, garage you can pull into, you know, retire at 62, get on with your life, right? Kids are growing out of the house, you can pay for their college. Are we not attempting to justify our lives and make sense of our life and our flesh apart from faith when we do that? We absolutely are. And because, because it is something that is so normative to American Christians, we justify it all day long. Do our lives make sense? apart from our flesh? Do they make sense or do they require faith? I want to say this and address this as well. Some of you just heard this and a deep sense of pain fell upon you because the brokenness of the cultural mandate is evident. It's why things like abortion and infertility happen. Some people have kids and don't want them. Others want kids and can't have them. I can't make sense of that, church. I know it's really hard, I'm sorry. Some of us have had abortions and the shame of those decisions weigh on you almost daily, even if you've come to Jesus for them. You still can't shake it. 
You live in shame and you, you want to be released from that burden. Others of you, you want so bad to have children and you just can't. We don't know why. You try the infertility stuff. You've done everything that you can. And all I know that the, the weight is heavy and the pain is deep and somehow Jesus is enough. And so when you read Genesis 1, whether you're in either one of those camps, you're still made in God's image. He still loves you. He still has a plan for your life and a design for your life. And we hang on to the promise at the end of the Bible where Jesus says he's making all things new. Not only do we need to experience the image of God in our relationship with him, our relationship with self and others, but also in our relationship with creation. Let me reread Genesis 1.28. We talk about our work and the way that we work. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he goes on to describe everything that he's made. That somehow these image bearers of God are different and they're very good and he's given them this responsibility. So not just this identity, but this responsibility. Subdue, that's not a word that you use often, right? I haven't used it in a while. <laughs> Maybe you have. But subdue means to bring under control and to build up. Dominion means to rule over. So there is a clear order and purpose for creation and then God making man in his image at the end and then giving them responsibility that he didn't give the other parts of creation. I could say a lot of things about this, but I want to spend a few minutes and just talk about really a theology of vocation and calling. Your identity as an image bearer and our responsibility to steward relationships tremendously impacts how you view the work that you do. First thing to notice is this, and this might be shocking to some of us, but work is good. I know that's hard to believe because some of our experiences with work are so poor and we work for companies maybe that are run so poorly and we're undercompensated and overworked. But the way that God created work is he created it as good. Now we have all kinds of brokenness surrounded how we view work and then how we interact with work because sin entangles every area of our lives and every area uh, even as we subdue and have dominion over the work. <clears throat> work is good not just because it provides for our needs. That's a, that's a byproduct of it. But it's good because in it, we are participating with God in his creation mandate. Somehow, in our work, we are taking the chaos of life and helping bring order and fullness to his creation. Do You see that in the work that you do, whether it's you know, your child rearing or you're, you're working for the railroad. No matter what you're doing, you are creating order and chaos through the work that you do. Now, there are some spaces where that's not evident, that's not obvious because sin has distorted your work so poorly. But work is good. You think about it like this. The kingdom, there's a reason that the kingdom of God starts in a garden, that's raw, you know, it's, it's, it's untamed. But the way that the scriptures show the kingdom of God ending is what? In a, in a city, right? The New Jerusalem. 
well, how, does, how do we get from a garden to a city? Is God holding out on how that thing happens? Well, he's given us a creation mandate to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And somehow that produces a city, a city that's not broken and just takes advantage of people, but a city that's beautiful and flourishes with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from different socioeconomic classes, all flourishing in one place, living as image bearers with God at the center. That's what he has in mind. All work from science to farming to being a business executive to a teacher or a doctor or a police officer or a homemaker or a custodian is good because it draws out the unformed substance of creation and brings order and shape to it. All work, both manual and mental, very simple and highly sophisticated, is beautiful because it is God including us in his creative process and order, bestowing upon us the highest responsibility of making this place habitable, but also a place of fullness and flourishing. Now, I know we look at the earth and we think it's got so much farther to go, but think about how far it's already come. Think about that as you look at a map, as you look at a globe and you see the nations of the world. What we're talking about here is cultural renewal. My friend Travis has a quote I want to share with you to describe what that is. He says this, cultural renewal is about recovering the biblical purposes of calling and vocation so that our life and our work glorifies God. It integrates our God-given gifts, desires, and abilities and serves the common good, key phrase right here, in the places God sends us. You see, there are no accidents in where you're at today, whether you're sitting in front of your TV or you're looking at a sanctuary that's full of water. <laughs> There's no accident. We're called to live out this vocational calling no matter where God sends us. Even, in we, even when we don't love the work that we do, we can love the God who sent us into the work that we're doing. And that'll be evident by the way that we are working. And as Christians, the work we do is important, not just because it brings order, but because it's primarily how God is sending us into his world to be on his mission. Think about that. Most of us can't wait to get off the job. We can't wait to get off the clock. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that God might be sending you to wherever that place is, wherever you get your paycheck from, to bring kingdom light and to bring some order of fullness to creation? Have you ever thought that God may be doing that with you? Because Christians are the only people that can afford to work for others and not just themselves. You see, but there's two big distortions that Christians have when it comes to their faith and the work that they do. The first option that some people have is this, it's a sealed off faith. This is where a Christian compartmentalizes their faith and operates and functions out of the same fallen work behaviors and norms that everyone else in the office does. Stealing time from the company, joining in on the water cooler gossip. You know what this looks like. And this person is a person, could be a person who, who dies. And then at their funeral, all the coworkers come and they say, well, I didn't know this person was a person of faith. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a tragedy, church, for that to be your legacy, to be your story? So the, the, the first distortion is to just seal it off because it's, it's too dangerous. We don't, wanna, we don't want people to know about Jesus. I might get... I'm going to get written up. That's, you know, we can't do that kind of stuff. 
The second kind of overcorrection is this, maybe this obnoxious faith, right? This is a, a person that maybe loudly or clumsily proclaims the Christian faith in their workplace, yet never shows the inner qualities of a Christian, which are grace and mercy and compassion in a way which those, those image bearers that they labor with would receive more of God's love. It's kind of a cheap way out. Another way that you can do that is to, is to basically force unbelievers that you work with to have the same kind of code of moral ethics that you do, to have the same morality. And thus, what happens is you distance yourself and isolate from people who haven't adopted maybe that same code of ethics because maybe they don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. There's all kinds of distortion, and I'm not trying to make it a, a straw man argument. There's lots of distortions, but I'm certain this, I'm certain of this, that the work that you do in the secular world is just as important as the work that I do. And this church wants to do everything that we possibly can to help you live an authentic, integrated life of faith and meaningful work in everything that you do. That's not easy to do. It takes tremendous faith to be able to do that. I'm going to leave you with this, this quote from Tim Keller who who's just shares about the potential impact for the church through our work. He says this, the most powerful way to show people the truth of Christianity is to serve the common good. The monks in Middle Ages moved out through pagan Europe, inventing and establishing academies, universities, and hospitals, and they transformed local economies and cared for the weak through these new institutions. But they didn't set out to get control of a pagan culture. They let the gospel change how they did their work. And that meant they worked for others rather than for themselves. So my, my question to you as we close today is this. What, what image are you chasing today? Because if you're in Christ... God's image is absolutely stamped on your life. And it's becoming more full as you're being transformed. And God wants to integrate that image through how you see yourself, how you relate to him, how you relate to others in community and also the most vulnerable in our city. But not only that, through the very work that you do. And I think maybe a question that all of us can ask ourselves as we contemplate this this week and in prayer is to say, God, where's the brokenness in me? Where's the brokenness in me around this idea of the image of God? Is it the way that I look at other people and desire for them to be conformed more to my image than your image? Is it the way that I kind of seal off my faith from those that I work with? Is it in the way that I view relationships and even child rearing and family size? Because whatever it is for you, God wants to transform you from one degree of glory to another. And that's in the image of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have made us in your image. And while we're just hitting at the edges of what that means this morning, we know that you made us to be like you and to be in relationship with you. And it's hard to imagine that sometimes, Lord, when we feel the shame of our own souls and feel so distant from you. Father, my prayer is that we would, we would see a God that's come to meet us and to restore and renew and redeem not only our souls, but also this place that we call home for now. 
that the actual work and the relationships that we have are communicating something of your stamp upon our lives, your image. So Lord, would you make that known to us this morning more deeply? It's in Jesus' name.